In Genesis chapter 3, a major event in our history happened. This is like, um, this is like one of those dates that you should know of, uh, like an American, like you should know the date of Pearl Harbor. Anyone know the date? December 7th, 1941. Yeah, it's one of those major events. In Genesis chapter 3, in you and I's history, the fall of man occurred. Adam and Eve sinned. Romans chapter 5 tells us that because one man sinned, that all men sin. Now since that point, in Genesis chapter 3, everything after it has been revealing a major part of the character of God. Whether it's Noah's Ark, or David and Bathsheba, or Jonah and the whale, or Esther, or Job, all of these individuals, everything in the entire Scriptures is revealing one piece of the character of God. He's taking the trouble, and the chaos, and the sin, and the turmoil that the world becomes, and He's showing how He triumphs over it. And friends, that's exactly what He's doing in your life and in mine. That's the character of God. Taking the trouble and showing how His name can be glorified through a messed up world. When we start wrestling with the Passover, the meal that we've been, um, the meal that we've been hanging out, if you could pick your last meal, like if the doctor came to you and said, hey, here's the deal, you're going to die tomorrow, alright? For sure. 100%, you're dead, it's over. You're like, like, what? Like, where did this come from, right? We're not talking about that. That's just the reality. Work with me, all right? So, you had one last meal. You knew that for sure. What would that meal look like for you? A lot of family leaders, this would be a great, relevant question to open up with on Sunday, right? What would your last meal look like? For me, can I, can I share with you? Uh, has any Texas Roadhouse fans here? They just want to wipe that butter on your face sometimes, you know? It's like, give me that butter and just... It'd be a 27-ounce, which they don't even sell there, 27-ounce ribeye. Right? Those steak fries, that butter. It'd be beautiful. Like my friends and my family, we'd be celebrating, right? It'd be a beautiful, beautiful picture. Well, so far in Jesus' last meal on this earth, uh, first of all, one of his boys has betrayed him. That was perfect. And then his other guys were arguing amidst themselves who was the greatest. Like, like what a last meal. You know what I mean? Like if you could picture it, to go any more, any more wrong. Like, it's not even possible. Like, this is the meal of disaster. But friends, it's actually the meal, the, the meal of beauty, isn't it? All of what I just share with you about all of what Scripture is pointing to became a reality in this meal. He's taking the trouble and showing how he triumphs. How? Judas, a betrayer. A random person would be like, whoa, whoa, whoa that's not good. If one of your own kind is betraying you, like that's not a good start to things. But the betrayer was a Scripture fulfilled. And listen to this. Jesus shows how He triumphs over a betrayer by being like, oh, you know what? You, you want to betray me? Go ahead. I'm still going to die like my Father told me to, and I'm still going to raise from the dead. In fact, betray me because that's what you're supposed to do. Then, listen to this. He's going to take these 11 B-teamers, these 11 disciples, who appear through the Gospels as morons. Like they just, they're, they're never getting it. They're arguing all the time about petty things. And he's going to take these guys and he's going to start the greatest movement 
of all time with them. Taking our trouble, my friends, and showing how He triumphs over it. Any of you guys in trouble here tonight? You came here burdened, relational chaos. You've had a stressed out week. Let me tell you something tonight. The message of God's Word is He desires to triumph for His name's sake, for His glory's sake, over all of your trouble, over all of your chaos. Cast your burdens upon Me because I care for you. Can tonight we let Jesus be Jesus? So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. As we finish this meal, it's a perfect, it's an awesome last meal. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, are you guys all there? Say I'm there. The Scripture says this. They're still in the Passover, which will later be called the Lord's Supper. Verse 31 says this. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked you, has asked to sift you as wheat. Perfect, right? Like if it wasn't bad enough, we had the betrayer, we had some arguing boys, and now Satan shows up at the meal, you know? That wasn't a part of my last meal montage, you know? Like... Things have just gotten dicey now. But there's so many things for us to see in this moment. First of all, um, sifting as wheat. Like, what does that mean? Well, I don't know how many wheat farmers are here, but there's this thing called a sieve. And what you would do as you were harvesting wheat is you would put all the wheat and the chaff in this sieve. And this sieve would have, like, very pointy edges all around it. And what you would do is you would violently shake this sieve, I'm not violently doing it right now, but you guys, you know, violently shaking this, and the wheat would spread around, and then eventually, you would throw the sieve up in the air, and the wheat would go flying in the air, and it was thought that all the chaff would fly away, and the wheat, the real wheat, would settle back down. So what Satan asks to do, not just of Simon, by the way, but this is of all the disciples, because the you in verse 31 is plural, So he's not just talking to Simon, even though he's addressing Simon. He's talking to all of them. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. He wants to shake you violently. And he wants to see which of you are real. Now, Satan and Jesus having a cosmic conversation should arise some questions in our mind. Amen? This is like, hold on. Satan and Jesus, or Satan and God, your picture of the Trinity, are talking about sifting people. And mentally, for those of you that have spent uh, some time in the church, there was, there's another story that should be like coming up in your mind, and it's about a man named Job, right? I'll put up Job chapter 1 for me. Now, I want to look at this just to help us see that there's another place in Scripture where this happened. Verse 6 of chapter 1. By the way, Job is so often misused. It's like if you ever get in a car wreck, this is the passage people quote, you know? You get in a car wreck, you get out of your car, the first people are like, well, hey, Job had it pretty bad. You know, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, I don't... That's complete misusage, you know? Yes, Job did have it bad, right? But the the car... No, so look at this. Verse 6. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Now, this is just interesting. So Satan comes with the angels to talk to the Lord. Verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Wouldn't you have loved to have been there at that moment, right? That's like, where? <laughs> I just love that question because he obviously knows for whatever reason he wants to hear. Satan answered the Lord, which by the way, every time you see the Lord capitalized, it's that Hebrew word Yahweh. Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Now this is consistent with Ephesians, 
which tells us that Satan is the kingdom, is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, or the ruler of the earth, right? Verse 8, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? God brings it up. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like, uh, there was no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. This is an interesting cosmic conversation, isn't it? Verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? By the way, a hedge here. That's where some of you guys have have heard of this hedge of protection around you. This is where this comes from, right? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flock and herds are spread throughout the land. What is Satan saying? He's saying, look, God, this Job guy, yeah, he may be a good guy, but let's be clear, you've protected him. Like you've blessed him with flocks, you've hooked him up, so that's why he's faithful. Verse 11, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Uh, I get a little bit of an image, just a little one, of like the bullies on the playground, you know? This is like kind of mono mono here, you know? Stretch out your hand, and I promise you he'll curse your name. Oh, really? You know? Look at this, verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, for those of you guys who know the story of Job, you know that his children, what? Die. His flocks die. Everything is taken from him but his life. And never, even though there's a point where it seems like he's going to turn, he never curses God. But these two stories, Satan asking to sift the disciples as wheat, and this moment here in Job, pose some interesting things for you and I, doesn't it? First of all, they tell us this, that Satan has to ask permission, my friends, for everything that he's doing. Why? Because the second implication is, is there is a certain hierarchy of authority that is all around us, my friends. That hierarchy goes something like this. God, I didn't know if if you were aware, Satan underneath that. Listen, there is never a moment, ever, where this shifts. I think sometimes we get confused and give Satan the credit that sometimes God deserves. That's tough. That's tough. But my friends, God is always above the authority of Satan. That's why I struggle sometimes when something bad happens and people are just, that's just the enemy, you know? And listen, it's not that it may not be. But have you considered the fact that somewhere along the line, God allowed Satan to accomplish that? God allowed Satan to do that? This does not, in any way, shape, or form, diminish the power of the enemy. Are you guys with me? Listen, he's talking to Peter here. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, do you guys know what that passage says? The devil, your enemy, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Do you think Peter understood this now a little bit firsthand? Peter, in his letter, writes about the fact that Satan is looking for someone to devour. Do you think that that's why then, in Ephesians chapter 6, we get this image of, like we're to put on the full armor of God. Can I ask you guys a question? Have you ever thought about that one of these conversations maybe has happened over your life? Do we have any idea what's happening in the spiritual realms? 
God gives us a map of how we're to guide our heart through that battle. That we're to put on the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, feet fitted with readiness. Because there is a cosmic battle happening. But, if you are sanctified and protected by the person and work of Christ, then you are, my friends, under that hedge of protection of Christ. Satan does nothing on this earth which he, which he has not asked for permission for, my friends. Everything that he does has been allowed by God because the hierarchy of authority goes God, Satan, always. So this cosmic conversation... Can you imagine this dinner? Betrayal, argument... Uh, Simon, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, you know? They would have all known what that looks like. Are you kidding me? Like, how am I going to become a grain? Like, I don't even, you know? They're confused, but they know this. That there's going to be a powerful, cosmic thing happen here. And verse 32 happens. Oh, my friends, verse 32. But I have prayed for you, Simon. <laughs> uh, how many times have you guys ever heard that in your life? Any, how many times? Anybody? Like four million, right, from Christians. And it's always like, you know, you, sh- you share something with them. And Christians are great about this. They're always like, yeah, yeah, I'll pray for you. Hey, and I'm thinking about you. You know, it's like, what does that mean? Like, thinking about me. Pray for me, you know. And let's not wait. Like, let's throw down right now, you know. I have time. I ask for prayer. I share, I, share, I share what I was struggling. So let's just do it right now. There is no Christianese language when Jesus says, I've prayed for you. Are you guys with me? When Jesus says it, like, He's thrown down. You know what I mean? And friends, can we take from that example, right? Simon, I've prayed for you. And when He says that, my friends, it opens up a ginormous can of worms. Now, to have Jesus praying for you, have you ever thought about that before? Like, what does that mean? Well, to understand what that means, we need to go on a little bit of a journey. You guys ready? There were 12 tribes of Israel. From one of the tribes of Israel, you guys will remember this in Genesis, came all of the priests, okay? That was the the tribe of what? Anyone? Levi, right? All of the priests came from the line of Levi. Now, over the priests, starting with Aaron in Exodus chapter 29, there was a high priest. And the high priest represented all the other priests one day out of the year. On the Day of Atonement... The high priest was the only one allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle a blood offering on the mercy seat, and spend some time representing everyone sacrificing to the Lord. So the high priest had this tremendous amount of authority overall. Again, it began with Aaron. There were some 83 other high priests between between Aaron and the time of Jesus. Now, something interesting happens about the terminology of who Jesus is. Hebrews chapter 7, put it up for me. Hebrews chapter 7, look at this, verse 24. But because Jesus lives forever, He has a permanent, what's the word? He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him, look look at this, because He always lives to intercede for them. Jesus has become our intercession. It goes on. Look at this. This is awesome. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is homely, holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus became the ultimate 
high priest who is eternally interceding to the mercy seat, to the throne of the Father for His people. Now, this is huge. Why? Because the high priest in the Old Testament went to the Holy of Holies how many times? One time a year. The Day of Atonement. Whereas this passage says, because Jesus lives forever, He has a permanent priesthood. He is always interceding. Ephesians, put this, uh, put this passage up for me. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12. In Him, and through faith in Him, look at this, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Simon, I've prayed for you, and what he's saying is, is I'm interceding for you because I'm the high priest. And when I pray to the Father, when I mediate to the Father, those prayers get heard. Those prayers get answered. That's why we pray and we say, in the name of who? In the name of Jesus, because He's our mediator. Romans chapter 8, look at this beautiful passage. Who will bring any charge against those whom whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Verse 34, who, who is He that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Christ is the ransom, the high priest in the order, Psalm 110 of Melchizedek, who shows up in Genesis, kind of a mystery man. But we know, my friends, that Jesus becomes this great intercessor. What does that do for our prayer life? For many of you, it's done nothing, hasn't it? I've just told you that in the old times, in the ancient Jewish times, the high priest went in the Holy of Holies one time a year on the Day of Atonement. And I've just told you that now through Christ, because He's the high priest, because He's eternal, because He's always interceding for us, do you understand that we can go into the mercy seat of the Father through the person of Christ at any point in the day, all day, every day? What does that do to our prayer life? In Him and through faith in Him, we have confidence, Ephesians 3 says. And friends, can I tell you something? When Jesus intercedes, those prayers are heard and are answered. We see Him interceding all the time. Maybe you you remember this. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What do you think the Father does? Forgives them, for they know not what they do. The Christ high priestly prayers are heard and are answered, my friends. So it's time that the church starts praying with confidence through the mediator of Jesus. Amen? We, we can have that confidence. We don't have to sit back anymore and wonder. Christ is our intercessor. And He says, Simon, I've been praying for you that your faith may not fail. Satan's asked to sift you like wheat, but I've been praying for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now this is beautiful. Because it's setting up something that Jesus is going to tell Simon here in a little bit. But when he says, and when you've turned back, that you may strengthen your brothers, can I tell you guys what that looks like? If everything in the Scriptures is God taking our trouble and our chaos and showing how He triumphs in it, then that means that that's happening in your life. And when Jesus tells Peter, when you've turned back, 
It's time to strengthen your brothers. What he's saying is, you are going to have a voice. Because you will realize that you cannot live life on your own. You will realize that it's only by my empowerment that you can do anything. And so you'll strengthen your brothers because out of your voice will be, I was in trouble, I denied Christ three times, my life was chaos and ruined, but God triumphed. And you guys know what happens with Peter. In Acts chapter 1, he stands up in front of the church and prays and 3,000 people come to know Christ. God takes this wretched man, Peter, and makes him into something because of his name and glory's sake. You have a story to tell. You have a voice that God's given you. And the world needs to hear believers who are talking about the triumph of Christ. And not rules. And not regulations. And not some pharisaical view that you're supposed to look like. The world needs to hear you and me talking about how Jesus triumphed over our life. That's the story they need to hear. And so if you're ever confused about what it is that you're supposed to tell people, why don't you tell people how Jesus has changed your entire life? And if He hasn't, the promise is is that He can and He will if you will cry out to Him. So if you're here, you're like, I want that. You know what? Cry out to Him, my friends. He's the interceder. He's the mediator. And when you call out in the name of Jesus, those prayers are heard. It's time that we have a voice, a bold voice. You see, because the world, they keep seeing Christians not needing Jesus. But when they hear the triumph coming out of our mouth, what they see is that guy needs a Savior. Without a Savior, that guy's nothing. And that's what Peter kept saying. I'm nothing without a Savior. In the name of Jesus, walk. Acts chapter 3. Amazing stuff that happens. So my friends, it's time to pray to the great high priest, that he would empower you with a voice to talk of his triumph. Verse 33. But he replied, and we have, to, we have to hang with Peter here, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. I mean, this is an intense moment, right? Like, this is kind of you and I, right? This is one of those Good desires, but a desire, my friends, without the intercession of Christ is a fleeting human heart desire. You guys with me? He says, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Now, there's something interesting about this. This shows us that Peter, my friends, is beginning to understand what's happening with Christ. I'm ready to what? Go with you to prison and to death. Peter's starting to understand. I think this is a good desire. I want to go to prison and death with you, Jesus. I mean, I think this is a righteous, okay desire. The Bible talks all kinds of things about desire. I just want to read a few of these for you. In Acts chapter 13, uh, verse 22, David is said to have a heart after God's own heart. He's called to have this godly desire. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your what? Of your heart. Psalm 145.19 says this, He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. And lastly, in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 24, Scripture says this, What the righteous have, have asked for and pleaded for, that will be granted the desires of their heart. 
over and over and over in Scripture, we see this idea that when you fear God, the desires of your heart are answered. Why? Because in a brilliant moment, there is a fusion between your desire and the will of God. And the more that you and I come in communion with God, 1 John says that when we pray in the will of God, we will see answered prayer. Why? Because we're praying the will of God. What's dominating your desire right now? You have a lot of desires, a lot of dreams, a lot of visions. What's dominating? What do you think most about? Advancing your personal name and kingdom? Making sure that your voice gets heard for your name's sake so that everyone thinks you're cool. Making sure that everyone understands that you've got it all together. Or is what's constantly coming out of your mouth because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, is I desire to know your will. And as your desire meshes with the will of God, my friends, can I tell you something? You begin to cry out to the interceder and my friends' prayers begin to be answered. Because your desires and, and, and God's will are meshing in a way that can only happen when He's guiding our life. And so look, you've got a lot of desires. You've got a lot of passions within you. Lusts. The desire for popularity. A need for money. We have all these desires circling all around. Could our prayer to the great high priest be, God, will you mesh our desires with you? Will you, give us, will you give us your desires? What did the Scripture say? Those who what? Delight in the Lord. Those who delight in the Lord, they'll be given the desires of, your heart, of their heart. Those who fear the Lord will be given the desires of their heart. There's an implication of communion with us in Christ and that the desires mesh with that. Peter says, I'm ready to go to prison and to death. Anyone know anything about Peter? He ends up there, doesn't he? He ends up in prison. And friends, later in his life, just like ten of the other eleven disciples, he ends up being crucified upside down. This desire eventually gets interceded for. But what did he say? I'm ready. And what did God say? No, you're not. No, you're not. Why? Because I'm going to take your troubled self and I'm going to triumph over it and you're going to have a voice. My friends, our readiness, when it, begun, when it continues to be melded with the purposes of Christ, then we begin to live on His timetable and understand His timeline and not our own. Peter will go to prison and to death, but he is not ready yet. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, which is interesting, isn't it? Have you guys noticed what he's been calling him through, through this passage so far? What has he been calling Peter? Simon. He's been calling him Simon over and over and over. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter, which means what? Anybody? The rock. He changed his name. He hasn't called him Simon. He hasn't called him Peter in the entire Gospel of Luke. But now he calls him Peter. As if to build like this connection with him. As if to get him to remember for a moment all of the ways that he's called his life to be more. Verse 34, Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me you will deny three times that you know me. This had to be a blow in the gut of Peter. 
No, no, no. Like, not me, Lord. I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to go to death. No, no, no. Peter, before the cock crows three times today, you will deny me. Now, this is problematic. Why? I've just been preaching that when Jesus intercedes for you, his prayers get, get answered. So Jesus prayed, Simon, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When Judas fails, he commits suicide. When Peter fails, denies the name of Jesus three times, in Luke chapter 22, verse 62, what does he do? He sees the eyes of Christ and he what? Anyone? He weeps. He repents. There's a difference between struggling with your faith and struggling with faithfulness. And so when Jesus prays, I pray that your faith may not fail, that prayer gets answered. Because in his moment of turmoil, Luke records, he meets the eyes of Christ and instantly he repents. That prayer in that moment gets interceded for. We see later in the Gospels that Peter gets restored and Jesus sends him out, triumphing over this trouble. What a beautiful picture, my friends. This is what God does over and over and over. And this is what people need to be hearing. He did it. He triumphed. He's good. Verse 35. He kind of shifts gears a little bit. This is interesting. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, which, that's just, that's just weird, you know? I mean, I, when, when, the first time I taught this, I, I still haven't reconciled this verse, you know? I, I don't know what that would have looked like. I mean, I know there's like the purse, the man purse thing, and when I sent you without a purse, it's like, thank you, Jesus, you know? Thank you for sending us without that. Bag or sandals, did you lack anything, he asks. Nothing, they answered. Now, what's happening here? You guys will remember, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends out the twelve. He gives them power and authority. You guys remember this? He sends them out with nothing. Why does he send them out with nothing? Because the image is, you're going to go and you're going to connect with people. And people are going to provide food and lodging. People are going to hook you up. Listen, the time in Luke chapter 9, there would be opposition, but nowhere near the opposition right now in Luke 22. Are you guys with me? Jesus was growing in popularity. And so the image is, you don't need a purse, a purse or a bag or, you know, pink stand. You don't need any of that. Because people are going to provide for you. You're going to be blessed. You're going to be hooked up. And then, uh, when Jesus sends out the 72 in Luke chapter 10... He says the exact same thing. Go out, take nothing with you. And then, he says, when, when, when you do come up, uh, up against opposition, what do you do? You leave the city, you kick the dust off your feet, and you preach to them what? The kingdom of God is near. Right? You guys remember that. That was the time. Jesus is growing in popularity. A lot of people are connected with Christ. So there's this image of, of okay, things are good. Verse 36. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag. Like I picture like one of the disciples like raising theirs up, you know, and like everyone being like, what, you know. But now if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag. And look at this. This gets strange. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Whoa, 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 whoa. Did you guys see that same part I did in there? Is Jesus saying like it's time, you know, like what is he saying here? Like do you guys understand what a cloak is, right? It's your garment, you know? Thankfully, you would typically have two layers of garments. But he says, sell your cloak and buy a sword. Now, at first glance, you and I would have to question, like, so 
Is Jesus turning militant? He seems so humble and serving, and now Jesus is telling his disciples, like, it's time to start cutting some people up. Like, like, what's the image here? Look at this. The key word in this verse is, but now. If this were literal, then Matthew 26 would make no sense when Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. If this were literal, then it wouldn't make sense when Peter cuts the ear off the soldier and Jesus says, Peter, put your sword down. It wouldn't make sense. So clearly, the but now means that this is a figurative times are changing. You were accepted, but John chapter 15, now the world will hate you because they hate me. Times are changing, boys. This is a preparatory statement of it's going to get, it's going to get rough. It's going to get dicey. Can I ask any of you, has anything changed? Unfortunately, we live with the American facade that it has. That somehow we can live in our Christian culture and you know, somehow figure all this culture stuff up. My friends, this has not changed. The world is confused by the cross of Christ. They think it's foolishness, my friends. And they still, by the promise of John 15, hate the disciples. Hate, at times, you and I. Because of the name that we bear. But you'll also remember what Peter wrote. What did he say? Do not be ashamed when you, when you suffer, but rather rejoice that you bear that name. And so Peter leaves this moment and writes this amazing letter and says, no, 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 if we suffer to the glory of God because I bear the name of the high priest. And my high priest, I can go to him at any point, at any day. And that's what the, the non-Christian Jews miss. It's like, don't you guys get it? Everything that the entire Old Testament was pointing to was this moment where Christ would be the high priest. Verse 37, and friends, it is written, and He was numbered with the, tra- with the transgressions. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in Me. Yes, what is written about Me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus quotes, in this moment, Isaiah 53. Now, Isaiah 53, my friends, is one of the most Christ-filled passages in the entire Old Testament, which now Jewish synagogues have taken out of their synagogal readings. They don't read Isaiah 53. Because the entire thing is about Jesus. How do we know? Because Jesus says right here in this verse, all of that was about me. Can I show you some of that? Verse 12, put this up first. Therefore I will give him, this is the part that he quoted, therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He became sin for us. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, in Isaiah 53, my friends, this is just beginning. Verse 3. Look at this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. You have to understand this. If you're a disciple, you know the Old Testament Scriptures. The moment that he quotes Isaiah 53, as a disciple, you're sitting at that table and this is partially, hopefully, going through your mind. This verse, he was despised, rejected by men. All of a sudden, all the synapses in your disciple mind is going here. Verse 4. 
Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him and afflicted. Verse 5. But He was pierced for our transgressions. Yeah, but Christ was never prophesied in the Old Testament. I mean, He was bruised for our iniquities. Does that verse ring a bell? Crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we were healed. Do you guys understand what just happened in this dinner? He's saying, by my wounds, you'll be healed. He's already broken the bread. He's already held up the cup, talking about the new covenant. And now he says, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Unbelievable. Verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity, or a better word, is the sin of us all. Verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. You guys remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5, what did the Scripture say? Paul wrote, He has become our Passover, anybody? Lamb. He has become our Passover lamb. Was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before His shears is silent, so He did not open His mouth. Is anyone ever just perplexed by that image of Christ? He has all the power and authority in the universe. And he's walking with the cross on his back and saying on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Hey, I'm telling you what, we believe in this uh, statement that's too good to be true. You guys know what I'm talking about? You guys ever heard that before? You've been at like a timeshare. People are trying to sell you some trip to Hawaii. Like, it'll cost you 20 bucks, I promise, you know? I'm like, what? And then you start like reading through, and you're like, it'll cost you 20 bucks and your firstborn child, and then, you know. Ten payments of the Scripture. This is too bad to not be true. Like if you were writing a movie, you wouldn't be able to be this creative. If you were writing a script, my friends, you would not be able to script the Passover any worse. The chaos of the Scriptures, listen, the chaos of your life, legitimizes the Gospel. Why? Because it legitimizes the need for Christ. That needs a Christ. You need a Christ. It's too bad to not be true. Don't you love that we get to point to the Bible and say, rape, murder, incest, war, chaos, God wiping out man, women, and child. And people say, why? And we get to sit back and say, Isaiah 53, for the glory of God. I don't have to know all the answers. All I have to do is understand who's in control. And when I understand who's in control, it answers a whole lot of other questions. So he goes on in verse 8, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. Verse 9. Now friends, this gets really, really interesting here. And this is the part mostly of this verse I want you to see. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now verse 10 has caused many a believer to fear and tremble. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now, we better wrestle with that first part. 
It was the Lord's will to crush him. Peter stands up in front of the church in Acts chapter 20, and he says, God foreknew and foreplanned the death of Christ. Peter got it. But can I tell you guys something? The word will here in verse 10. I read a John Piper sermon this morning. He's talking about this particular verse. That word will is mistranslated in the NIV and many other scriptures. Two other places in Isaiah. Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 62. That Hebrew word for will is translated, the exact same word, only three times used in Isaiah, is translated pleased or delighted. The Lord was delighted to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord was pleased in the King James Version. Now, how can this be? How can a good, loving God be pleased to crush His Son? How can a good, loving God sit back in heaven and be pleased? Can I read a passage for you, my friends? This is just unbelievable. In John chapter 10, no need to flip there, I just want to read this for you. In John chapter 10, uh, Jesus is talking and He says, look, verse 17, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Listen, no one takes it from me. Not Pilate. No human. No Pharisee or Sadducee. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. Listen, I have the authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from who? From my Father. How is it that Yahweh can be pleased at the crushing of His Son? It's because the cross is the work of triumph that all of history has been waiting on. It's because when the world went chaotic and trouble came upon it in Genesis chapter 3, all of history was waiting on Jesus. And so Isaiah 53 says that Yahweh can sit back and be pleased because His plan was coming to fruition. Listen, it was this beautiful mesh of the Savior of the universe dying for the sins of many and the glory of the name of God. Because at the cross, the name of God was made so incredibly great. Because no longer was a sacrificial lamb needed to be slain for the sins. Now Christ became the mediator. He became the high priest. He became the ransom. So my friends, can I describe to you a bit of theology right now? God is pleased at His own glory. And so when the cross happened, He was pleased because it was the fulfillment, my friends, of all of His glory, watching His Son die, the sins coming upon Him, and three days later being raised from the grave, showing God triumphant over death, and so triumphant over all. Anybody just sitting right here saying, what a God. What a moment. What a dinner. How much can happen in one mealtime? You know? At first it seems like an awkward dinner with the in-laws, you know? Just chaos, and you don't know what to say. Some of you have great in-laws. Others of you will pray for you, you know? This is one of those moments, and it's 
beautiful. So look at this, verse 38. The disciples don't leave us hanging with some comment that will make us laugh. The, the disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. He's just, he's just like Isaiah 53. And the whole time, you know, they may be like, we got two. What? What is this? You know? And Jesus is like, no! <laughs> and what does Jesus say? How does he respond? That's enough. Now, again, it's possible for us to like interpret that as Jesus saying, two will do. Listen, I'm no math war matician, okay? But if you want to give the disciples who are fishermen and tax collectors two swords and say, all right, um, go ahead at the legions of the Roman army with two swords. Yeah, you got God behind you, okay? But, but he's saying, like, sell your cloak, you know, all that. Friends, he doesn't mean it literally here. And that's why he says this, it's enough. And, and the statement is not the two swords are over us. The statement is, this conversation is over. You know what I mean? Like, you, you guys have clearly, you know. What a dinner. What a dinner, huh? Betrayal. The new covenant. Arguments. The Lord's will and pleasure to crush His Son. The question for you and I remains tonight, my friends. So what will you and I do? All of the fulfillment of everything that had ever been understood, what will you and I do with this image of the cross? What's our response to this symbol of triumph? How do you and I tonight say what a God that would plan everything for your own glory and for your own namesake and would call me as a sheep who had gone astray to receive the grace of Christ? Can I ask you tonight, how do you respond to that God? What do you do with that great grace? Do you look at that cross and say, oh, the triumph of Christ, that now I can go to the Father and say, say, God, will you just heal this person or will you take this person or God, would you save this person? This is the symbol of intercession. My friends, tonight there's some celebrating and some gratitude that needs to be poured out of this room. Right now, the floor of this cross and the bleachers and whatever. Some of you guys, as we begin to worship, need to come and just say, Oh God, I've become so lackluster that I've forgotten your triumph. I've shown that you're a loser just even by my own life. God, would you renew me? Would you show that my faith is proven by your Son? Some of you tonight, need just to spend some time at that foot so that you can be reminded of a God who would be pleased, my friends, for His will and His glory's sake to crush His Son. And so look, it's time that you and I start celebrating the triumph and start sharing that everywhere. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to respond. And if you need to come and pray or 
gather with someone or go to a back wall, whatever you need to do, there shouldn't be a single individual tonight that walks out saying, I don't, I don't know. No, what a God. Unbelievably incredible Yahweh. Un- God, you're amazing. Let's pray. Father, I just, I'm overwhelmed with your grace, overwhelmed with your mercy. I'm thankful that you're our interceder. Father, I don't want to miss your triumph anymore. God, give us a voice, please. When people ask why we are what we are, will we breathe your name? Will your name be heard in powerful ways? God, will you show us how your character is constantly taking trouble and making it beautiful for your glory's sake, and it came to a head at the cross? Will you show us that tonight? We love you And we believe that through Your Son, Jesus, these prayers are not just heard, but can be answered. Friends, you're welcome to come to the cross and let's respond and worship.